Right, well, thank you very much for inviting me. This uh, actually follows on from the issue of complicity because I'm still going to be talking a bit about complicity in particularly a rather more um, restricted area. Uh, there is a handout going round because I'm shirking PowerPoint. Uh, philosophy isn't very easily illustrated, I always think. Now, let me just sketch a scenario. Two bank robbers together enter a bank, they're armed, uh, they hold up the staff, a bank clerk makes a break for it to get set the alarm, he runs off, one of the bank robbers shouts to another, shoot him, I can't! And uh, sure enough, the second robber shoots and kills the clerk. Now, uh, is the first bank robber guilty of anything? I think a lot of courts would assume that he was involved in the conspiracy and probably involved in murder just as much as the some, somebody who pulls the trigger. Um, and the reasons why he shouted may vary to perhaps his gun, gun and jammed, perhaps he just couldn't kill somebody in cold blood running away, shooting him in the back. But uh, he was complicit in a very clear way in somebody's death. Now, there are going to be lots of situations in medicine that I think aren't dissimilar, and it's that kind of situation that I want to talk about today. In other words, therefore, complicity in an immoral act carries responsibility, and Francesca was already referring to questions about informing, and particularly referring, which is my particular focus. Now, there is always, and we've come across this again today, a conflict between the efficient delivery of a service and the fact that people are going to perhaps conscientiously object. Francesca has been graphically illustrating that in about Italy and, and abortion. And people will often say, well, there's one law for all. People shouldn't make up their mind whether they're going to obey the law or not. If the law says something is permitted, and particularly if you have a national health service, people should, uh, if they're employed by the health service, abide by the rules. Uh, this year uh, was the anniversary of the sealing of Magna Carta in 1215, and that's often thought to be the root of a lot of our freedoms. And I suppose one moral that you can take from that is there is one law for everybody, that people can't opt out of the law, particularly in that case if you were the king. There's been a general fear of that, even with conscientious objection or particularly objections motivated by religion. Uh, I'm going to talk about conscience because I think it's wider than religion. It includes sometimes religious, religious conscience. But it is wider than that. Uh, though uh, you'll find that very often respect for one carries respect for the other. In the 19th century, of course, in the United States, there was a big argument about polygamy and Mormons and the very well-known uh, case of, uh, reached the United States Supreme Court about that, ruled against polygamy, even though obviously it was a religiously inspired view. And the uh, uh, report of the, the judgment uh, said very trenchantly that if it was allowed, you'd eventually get to the situation that every citizen could be a law unto himself. 
and uh, I suppose at that time it was himself too. The, uh, but uh, the point there was that people can't make up their mind what the law will be. And nowadays, of course, people are very concerned about that when confronted with things like Sharia law and all kinds of situations where people want to opt out of the general law of the land. Now, how persuasive is that? I mean, because obviously all this is at a context where law is changing and things are being allowed that uh, weren't allowed. Uh, gay marriage is, is an obvious case, but I'm not going to talk about that. I want to talk about medicine. But there are things that are now being uh, allowed in medicine by law that weren't. Can people <coughs> say, hey, I don't like that, I'm not going to abide by that? Um, or is conscience a private matter, a matter of personal preference, something that is a matter about the person, but not about public policy. Public policy should override it. Now, I think it's interesting, just going back to Magna Carta, that actually Magna Carta didn't explicitly say there is one law for everybody and that it should, in fact, override everything, because the very first clause of Magna Carta is actually about the freedom of the church, Ecclesia Anglicana, the English church. In other words, the very first clause of Magna Carta immediately said, this is limited. We aren't going to step on the rights of the church. And that uh, has traditionally been thought to be uh, the beginnings uh, of a view of freedom of religion. And particularly people in America would trace back what the First Amendment says about freedom of religion to that, um, sometimes very explicitly. And uh, I've seen justices of the Supreme Court in, in America say that. Uh, so uh, there is a, a kind of line, although one is obviously subtly different from the other and one is much more about institution, the other is more about individuals, but there is a suggestion that the law must be limited in its reach. And in some ways I think that's one of the issues that we have to talk about today, uh, that we talk about accommodation, and I've written a lot about the importance of reasonable accommodation in these cases, but we talk about exemptions, uh, all the time the suggestion is that the law, other things being equal, applies, perhaps people can opt out. Perhaps another way of looking at it is that the law itself should be limited in that there is ground the law should not tread on, and that therefore the law shouldn't overreach itself. What it should regulate should be bounded, and the question is of course how far should it be bounded or should it be bounded at all. Uh, I'm assuming that uh, moral judgments aren't just a matter of personal preferences, they're not just about me. That's why when we're talking about integrity this morning, I mean, that's very important, but it puts the emphasis on me rather than what the argument is about, which is very much often what is the role of our judgments in talking about what's good for people. In other words, moral judgments are very often typically about what's good for human flourishing. And the arguments are very often about what constitutes human flourishing. And therefore, you'll find very often uh, that uh, an argument between two people about human flourishing uh, actually really cuts across each other. It isn't that my feeling is different from your feeling, it's that, and particularly in medicine, we're arguing about what is actually good for the patient and there are different judgments. It isn't that I can't do this, I mean that's involved in it, but it's I can't do it because I think it's something that's wrong, something that's harmful to the patient. So morality, I'm assuming, isn't just a matter of personal preference. 
Uh, I sometimes get worried about talk about values, which is all the rage nowadays. Um, as a philosopher, I've always rather been brought up with talk about values and facts and the one being different from the other. The, the assumption is very often that facts are something that are about truth and something that uh, therefore can be established scientifically. Values are just something private, subjective, preferences, something that we can in fact really ignore when we're getting to the nitty-gritty about public life together. And I think that's an unfortunate way of looking at things. What's very often at issue in issues of conscience is a judgment about what is good for people and what is bad for people. And indeed, a contrast between private and public, I think, already sets up the problem in a contentious manner. Now, one of the reasons I got particularly interested in the issue about effective referral this year uh, is what's going on in Canada. I think there may be one or two Canadians here who may know more about this than I do. Uh, but uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, the Canadian Supreme Court uh, ruled in favour of what they call it described as physician-assisted dying, which I assume includes euthanasia as well as uh, voluntary suicide. Um, they found in the right to life, rather mysteriously, a right to die, um, and uh, suddenly decided that everything that had been said on this issue for generations before uh, wasn't in accordance with their view of human rights. Well, whatever you think about all of that, and I don't like judges making decisions like that. I think it ought to be for parliaments and congresses. But nevertheless, uh, whatever you think about it, it's a fact in Canada now that the law is being changed in a radical way. And whatever action the Canadian Parliament does or doesn't take, it is a fait accompli. The only issue is how it's to be regulated. And this is in, in tune with a uh, general movement in Canada. In this year, for instance, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario issued a new policy approved by that council, and it proved controversial in that though it respects the right of physicians not to participate in medical practices of which they disapprove for reasons of conscience or religion, it demands that they make an effective referral the phrase they use, to other doctors will, who will provide the service. And they define an effective referral as a referral that's made in good faith with a view to supporting, not frustrating, or impeding access to care. Uh, that makes it pretty clear that you, you're really positively helping somebody to get access to care. Um, and the assumption is that anybody who conscientiously refuses is actually not actually helping to provide good care for the patient, which I think begs the question anyway as to what constitutes proper care. It assumes that the view of the majority, perhaps as expressed in legislation, defines what good care must be. Um, well, perhaps from as a matter of public policy it has to, but I, I, in all of this I think we ought to be aware of the role of minorities. Somebody said earlier with, about conscientious objectors that perhaps uh, later on people would see that the conscientious objectors were right all along, 20 years along the line, things might change. Uh, the fact that the people make a witness to something uh, doesn't mean that they should be silenced. Uh, I think they should be respected. I'm not a pacifist. I don't like, uh, really, uh, and I use the word like, I mean, it's a personal preference in a way, I don't like people who want to opt out of defending the country. Uh, but I respect their right to do so. I also respect very much the right, their 
view that there's something basically wrong about going to war and taking human life. I think that's a valuable moral insight that we lose at our peril. And so, in a way, though I wouldn't like pacifists to be running the country, because they might be sometime, uh, but uh, uh, although I don't uh, like that, uh, nevertheless, uh, I respect their views, and actually I think it's important that they are offered in public debate and continue to be offered in public debate, and perhaps as a break to the rather more gung-ho views of some people who think that the way to achieve people's rights is to bomb them. And uh, uh, so I, I do, uh, I, and, and the same applies in medicine. People may lose an argument, but I don't think minorities should be extinguished. And I think this is part of the point about conscience, and it brings us back to wider views about the role of democracy. Democracy is not the dictatorship of the majority. We should foster minority views, and although we all have to decide what has to be done, we can't be paralysed, nevertheless, we have to respect those who, for very good, important reasons, as we've been saying today, might uh, have other views. Many, of course, do have little patience with the refusal of professionals to do what was regarded as part of their job. And uh, as we've seen today, I mean, there is always the view that if you don't like it, you should get out of the job or not enter into it in the first place. In the medicine, I regard that with some horror. I was, uh, I'm not a Catholic, but I was lecturing not long ago in the sixth form of one of the leading Catholic schools in this country, and uh, I was very concerned when several of the students came to me after, they were girls actually, uh, but who uh, was said that they were thinking of applying to Oxford to do medicine, but they were very seriously worried because they thought once they were doing medicine they'd be sucked into doing things that they as Catholics would find morally repugnant, and they wondered therefore if they should enter medicine. And the idea that if you've got a conscience you shouldn't enter medicine is to my mind not reassuring. But so that is a real worry, it isn't just a notional worry, this is actually how some people are thinking. Well, let's get back to effective referral. Perhaps as a matter of practical politics, if not in of principle, uh, people shouldn't be coerced into doing what's repugnant to them. Let them pass their duty to a colleague. But the attitude that the professional must be prepared to refer the patient to a non-objecting doctor is fairly widespread and it is actually, I see, the official policy of the Ontario College that I've already quoted. Of course, if too many doctors do that, you can't provide the service. And one article on the subject um, says that where a colleague is not reasonably available or the patient's vital interests are at risk, then the objector must provide the contested service. Um, and I think that's an interesting point to take because it suggests to me that actually if people are willing to say you've got to refer, they're also going to be willing very often to say, well, if there isn't anyone to refer it to, you've got to do it yourself. In other words, they're not taking the role of conscience seriously. Now, let me go back to our bank robber example because... Uh, Actually, if you look at the Canadian situation, what we're talking about now is particularly referring people for assisted suicide or euthanasia, euthanasia particularly. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, we're not very far off, I think, from the bank robber example, uh, that we're actually saying to people, um, 
Well, you may not be prepared to kill, but get your colleague to do it for you. Knock, get the, take him to introduce him, or, vice, or whatever is, is necessary. You've got to do something positive to pass the person on to make sure the service, in inverted commas, is given them. And I'm not surprised that some people feel that that is real complicity, that they feel that there's something not uh, quite right about that. I mean, complicity certainly admits of degrees, referring patients to somebody else perhaps implicates doctors less than doing it themselves. But the bank robber example, I think, suggests it isn't a clear-cut issue. And in any case, it's accepted that there is still complicity in what some people may see as a horrendous evil. Now, uh, the people I've been quoting have a simple solution for those with a tender conscience who might resist such coercion. Just because the professional obligation there remains, they say of a doctor who's reluctant to engage in certain procedures, and this is a view we've already heard today, she can, just as she fairly joined, freely leave the, prof the profession. And they further add that by remaining, the professional must accept that sometimes patients come first. Well, apart from the fact that that doesn't take seriously conscience, uh, again, you see, I think it begs the question about what is in the interests of the patient. This is a deep argument. I mean, I, I don't think you have to be particularly fanatical to say actually killing somebody isn't in their interests. Uh, I mean, it's, a, a, I would have thought, a, a fair viewpoint, even if it's in a position of appalling suffering and you may not agree with it. You can see what they're getting at anyway. Um, so uh, uh, this is a deep argument about what proper care consists in. And yet time and time again, I find in reading this literature, there is an assumption uh, that uh, what's been decided by the profession is what is in the patient's care, and anybody deviating from it is refusing to actually take part in proper professional standards of care. And to my mind, that actually does beg quite a lot of questions. Uh, and incidentally, as gain, I think it's important that we think that big issues are involved here. It isn't just a matter of the patient's preferences versus the doctor's preferences. Again, it's wrong to think in terms of preferences. Uh, this, the question is, what is good for somebody? What is bad for somebody? Uh, what, what is harmful? And uh, there are different standards. I mean, is appalling suffering the only harm? Is actually ending life itself a major harm. Uh, you can have a, a lot of ethical arguments about that that I think uh, go pretty deep about what it is to flourish as a human being, goes to the very foundation of ethics. And I don't think you can just come up with simple answers and say the people who are on the other side aren't fulfilling their professional duties. Now, as I've said, nowhere is this more the case than in the current issue of great ethical dispute, the provision of assisted dying, um, assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia. Doctors who've dedicated themselves not just to the avoidance of human suffering but the preservation of human life could very well find that being called upon to be involved in the deliberate ending of a life is just as reprehensible as uh, shouting for the shooting by a bank robber. Deliberate killing might for them be a line that they would feel they shouldn't cross. So, uh, for a lot of people, life matters. And as I've said, th this has come to the fore in Canada, in the case Carter v. Canada, about assisted suicide. 
And again, I think the court came down on one side of a complicated philosophical debate. And I think that uh, they really, uh, well, their conclusion was that they ruled in favour of decisions about assisted dying by competent adults who seek such assistance as a result of a grievous and irremediable medical condition that causes enduring and intolerable suffering. And there was obviously a great deal of room as well for argument about a lot of those words there, who's a competent adult, who's an adult, um, what kind of assistance? What is a grievous and irremediable medical condition? What's in and so on. Uh, I mean, th th it isn't itself something that's the end of an argument, but the beginning of one. But therefore, in Canada and elsewhere, when decisions are going to be made about physician-assisted dying, uh, I'm arguing it must be part of the democratic process, not only to listen to dissenting voices, but accept that in fundamental moral issues, particularly about life and death, the losing side in the debate mustn't just be annihilated or compelled to do something they regard as utterly wrong. Uh, they must be respected. There is a cursory reference in the judgment of the Canadian Supreme Court at the end of their judgment to the fact that a physician's decision to, to participate in assisted dying is a matter of conscience and in some cases of religious belief. And they say that all the rights enunciated in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms need to be reconciled. Well, that's, again, the beginning of an argument, not the end of it. How on earth do you do that? And uh, at the moment in Canada, it's not clear the Canadian Parliament is going to do it. Perhaps it will be the professional bodies. That's not quite clear. Um, now, one contribution to the debate was sketched by a team of academics from philosophy and law who tried to deal with, with all this by recognising a right to decide to decline to provide legally permissible and publicly funded health services if providing their services violate the freedom of conscience. But they go on to say, we're told of doctors that in such situations they must make a referral to another health care provider who is willing and able to accept the patient and provide the service. So again, we're back to effective referral. Uh, you can't, in fact, uh, therefore, uh, just decline and opt out, you have to refer. We're back with the bank robber scenario. So uh, there's considerable pressure to draw people in more and more to the whole process of felicitation. And of course, I, th I think in some ways, I mean, we've been dealing today with the issue as well of what happens if enough people uh, will not participate and I, I always think that it is significant if uh, a country passes a law and the people who are required to implement the law are very, very reluctant to do it. I think there must be something wrong with the law. It's all very well as leaving the dirty work to other people, but if it is that dirtier work, according to the view of enough participants, then that itself should give pause to legislators who need, uh, perhaps, to think again. Uh, th there is something, if 80% of doctors in a place say they won't do something, that itself should be part of uh, a cause for concern. As I've said, very often those who object to effective referral are given short shrift. Um, it's just a matter of administration, and if you can't find other people to fill in, then they've got to do it uh, uh, themselves. And uh, there isn't a sufficient recognition here, I think, that 
there is actually a, a clash of moral vision. Now, I think there's a slippery slope here. I mean, a lot of people in a lot of contexts are contemptuous of slippery slopes, uh, but I think that, it's, that there is a very uh, real moral question about that. It's very easy to take the first step and think it doesn't matter, and then the next step is little and it doesn't matter, and so on, until in the end you're sucked into doing something that you would have first thought very definitely does matter. So I can quite understand why people are very, very reluctant to be involved. Now, when criminal activities like robbing banks are involved, that's obviously wise, but the same problem does arise in medical areas where things are complicated, just because different views of what is good and right and whether the end result is desirable or not are involved, that's part of the problem. But I still would argue you should be sensitive to those professionals who feel that they're being inexorably drawn into a process that involves something they disapprove of. Now, there are two objections that you could make to this. I mean, the first is uh, one I've already mentioned, really, saying, well, there must be one law for all, and that's just saying, well, what we decide, everybody must abide by. And although I have some sympathy with that, uh, I think we also have to be flexible, because, as I've said, in a democracy, you have to accept the fact that diversity is the root of democracy. Democracy isn't here to extinguish diversity, it's here to manage it. It's to accept that we all have different views, we've got to decide what to do, we've got to balance the views. But that doesn't mean you stop some people holding their views, or indeed, where possible, acting on them. And so I think that it's very important uh, that, from a democratic point of view, you nourish oppositions, you nourish dissent, as well as uh, those who are willing to conform. But another point is that, of course, moral responsibility can't go on indefinitely, and although one can talk about slippery slopes, there are very real moral issues which I recognise about how far um, you are involved. Now, I would have said that actually referring somebody even to the extent of saying, well, I'm not going to do this, but let me take you next door to George who will, uh, that seems to me to be very definitely being complicit in something. Um, we've already talked today about people who are, in fact, um, required to give information. And I can accept that people would feel a bit reluctant about pushing information on people or being required to give information. Uh, indeed, I'm inclined to say that uh, if uh, the authorities want to provide a service, they ought to make sure the information is readily provided by them. They shouldn't accept that people who don't necessarily want to be involved have to provide that information. But of course, as you go further back, it's, it's less clear how far people are involved. Is, for instance, a secretary writing a letter to set up an interview about abortion, contraception, assisted suicide or something, is she complicit? Well, I would have thought most people would say not. She probably oughtn't to be concerned with the contents of the letter or the contents of the uh, medical interview anyway. But, but that doesn't sit. She, she probably isn't. Um, on the other hand, I suppose if she objects to abortion, she shouldn't get a job in an abortion clinic. Uh, so th there are issues there, um, but uh, 
again, in a hospital, how near do you have to be to something uh, to actually involve yourself in participation? Now, this was something that did come up recently in the United Kingdom Supreme Court about abortion. There was a case of nurses in Glasgow and uh, last year when delivering a unanimous judgment about participation in abortions Lady Hale on behalf of her fellow judges in the Supreme Court said it's a feature of conscience clauses generally within the healthcare profession that the conscientious objector be under an obligation to refer the case to a professional who does not share that objection. This is a necessary corollary of the professional's duty of care towards the patient. Once she's assumed care of the patient, she needs a good reason for failing to provide that care. Well, uh, I, that's all very well, but I, I think that, again, uh, there is something that, that I've mentioned before, uh, that there is an assumption that everybody agrees with what proper professional care is, and that actually the person who, because of conscience, isn't willing to refer, uh, is in fact not providing care. They may not be willing to refer precisely because they think they are providing what they regard as good care. Uh, this particular case, as I said, was about participation in the process of abortion, and uh, the question was, was the general supervision and support of staff participation, participating in the termination process itself tantamount to participation. In other words, that there were nurses just supervising a ward where there were abortion patients, uh, so they were having to put, drop rosters uh, for, for nurses dealing with them. But they weren't necessarily hands-on themselves. They certainly weren't involved in any medical procedure, uh, but they felt they were generally felicitating abortion in a way they objected to. Now, the Supreme Court was not sympathetic to them about that, uh, Lady Hale says robustly that participate, in my view, means taking part in a hands-on capacity. Um, well, again, you see, I suppose that goes with the idea that it's, you should refer. If you're not actually doing it yourself, uh, you shouldn't object. Um, but again, with the bank robber example, that would suggest if you don't actually pull the trigger, you're not responsible. I think a lot of people would feel they are being sucked into a process uh, if non-participants can arrange for someone else to act on their behalf, uh, nevertheless, aren't they somehow being participants? There has to be a middle path between saying that anyone involved in the running of a hospital is responsible for everything that goes on within the war, so that if you're in part of the catering staff, you're responsible for the abortions. That obviously is wrong. And saying that no one has any responsibility for a process unless they're actually hands-on at the end. So I do feel that the United Kingdom Supreme Court uh, probably isn't giving enough scope for conscience. And uh, I think that uh, in themselves demanding referral and assuming that there isn't any moral worry about that, I think they're being uh, a little bit optimistic. One of the general problems about conscience and uh, about uh, judgments about what's right and wrong is that they can be so easily dismissed and I mentioned this about as being subjective and a matter of preference and that it makes it easier 
to actually push them into the, the sidelines. It's about like religion being thought to be just something subjective, therefore it doesn't have to come out in public. It doesn't have to be part of the public square. Well, I think all of these matters of conscience are about what should be done publicly. I don't think they should be annihilated. I think they should be listened to and respected. But of course, we in the end have to do something as a nation, as nations. So we have to make decisions and not everyone is going to get what they want. Right.